Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. As I've been learning, growing, becoming more comfortable in this whole podcast world, I've come to the conclusion that there are a couple ways to approach the assembly of an episode. I can go with randomness, or I can construct a theme. The last few episodes have been generally themed, but today we're going to have ourselves a random sode. We'll start with my first editorial, specifically regarding the Beijing Olympics, and then we'll move into a somewhat extended review regarding fossil finds in Australia. These types of articles are slap full of illogicality. And then we'll wrap up with a very brief commentary on Biden's retraction of his vaccine mandate through OSHA. Stay alert. Hey, it's random so time. Here we go. Let's try something new. Let's call this an edantorial. See, because it's like an editorial, but it's it's mine, Dan, so, you know, e-dantorial. Look, I, I know it's tacky. If you know me, this isn't shocking. Just go with it. Let's talk Beijing Olympics. What do we do with these? Now, I know that we're in the middle of these. We're not quite halfway through the games at this point, but the controversy persists. For those that aren't sure what's controversial about this, it's pretty simple, really. China is an evil communist nation. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. As all communist nations do, they suppress freedom, try to destroy all religion, and enslave and murder even their own people when needed. Aren't we happy that's coming here? Specifically, the largest topic of discussion right now is the literal genocide of the Uyghurs, among other human rights offenses. So, to start, in brief, who are the Uyghurs? Put simply, they are an ethnic group, predominantly Muslim, who have briefly had their own independent state, but are now a group primarily in one province in China. From my understanding, these are generally peaceful people. They're not radical terrorists as an ethnic group. Currently, the Chinese government is detaining an unknown amount, and it could be up to a million individuals, in detention camps. They are being surveilled, spied on, abused, and systematically eliminated. I'm not going to dig far into this, but the bottom line is that in general, the free world agrees that there is an act of genocide taking place in China against the Uyghurs. In response to this, and to send a message, many nations are currently diplomatically boycotting the Olympics, meaning they will not send their heads of state or other officials to the Games. Some of the countries in this boycott are the United States, Australia, Canada, the UK, Denmark, New Zealand, and others. So if you listen to any political commentary, specifically conservative-based, as I'm guessing this is no more than a passing story on most mainstream sources, you'll hear a wide range of opinions as to what we should do or should have done regarding the Olympic Games. Some of the opinions include fully supporting the Games, diplomatically and athletically, as an individual, support your country, cheer them on to be victorious in as many events as possible. Another opinion is not one athlete, not one diplomat, not one dollar should be sent to the Games or the host country of China. Other opinion is to boycott the games, boycott the host country, boycott the advertisers, boycott the networks, basically boycott everything. And of course, there's every possible combination of actions and reactions between and amongst all of these. 
So trying to look at this from a logical and a Christian viewpoint, what is my opinion on how to handle this? And I fully admit, this is my opinion. I do not expect you to agree or disagree. I just want to try and give you some points to consider. First of all, this matters. When you speak of genocide, the systemic elimination of an ethnic group, let me try to understate this as much as I possibly can. Uh, that's bad. Okay. This is murder. Their religion doesn't matter. Their location doesn't matter. Their political bent doesn't matter. Within all ethnic groups, there are, humanly speaking, good and bad people. Some have many more bad people than others, but that doesn't give us the right to systematically eliminate an entire group. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That was the creation of Adam and then Eve, and from those two all mankind has come, which means that from the most righteous, godly person you know to the very worst human being to ever live, they are all created in the image of God. As such, they all have worth and value. We have guidance about how to handle those that violate the laws and morals and ethics that God has put in place, but we can't just turn a blind eye to an entire group of image bearers being enslaved, tortured, raped, brutalized, and murdered because we don't agree with everything that they are. So this does matter. Now that said, regarding this genocide, regarding the human rights violations that we all know China perpetrates on those within its borders, at the very minimum, and, and like I said, this is a very minimum, this is a political topic. The theory of just going to war is our first step it's, that's a bad theory in almost every case. A global statement through a diplomatic boycott, which expresses displeasure and embarrasses China, I believe that's a step that absolutely should have been taken. So good on the U.S. and the other countries that refused to send officials to the Olympics. And we know that this was a good step because China was pretty upset by this. Now, from a national standpoint, if done correctly... <sighs> Trade restrictions, sanctions, freezing bank accounts, etc. All of those are all very good methods to send as a warning shot. My opinion, that can't be done in a vacuum, though. It can't be the only bullet in the gun. If those actions don't work, then I fully believe that if we have enough information that a genocide is literally taking place, a coalition of nations needs to be willing to escalate to a hot war to stop it. Now, that's a massive step. I'm not even going to pretend to have good insight as to when you transition to that. The implications are immense. But bringing it back, my point is that from a national response with regard to the Olympics, a diplomatic boycott with very clearly expressed reasons as to why is very apt, and it should be done, and I'm glad that it was done. Now, we can argue that the Olympics shouldn't have been held in Beijing, shouldn't have been allowed. I'd agree, but that's easily stated in hindsight, and logistically much easier said than done considering the extreme size and extreme cost of hosting the Olympics, if we wanted to move them to a different venue. Beijing was chosen in mid-2015 as the host site, Prior to the selection, in 2009, there were clashes between the Uyghurs and Chinese, and then in 2012 through 2014, there were terrorist-style attacks that were carried out and blamed on the Uyghur Islamic terrorists. Now, with the Chinese government, who knows? But I'll take for granted that that is what actually happened. 
In 2015, the Chinese started rolling out massive surveillance, restricting freedoms, creating police checkpoints, and the like in the name of counterterrorism. I think it would be hard to argue with these actions. Then the camps started in 2017, and of course the useless UN investigated, asked questions, the Chinese government denied that they were camps, but rather vocational training centers. <laughs> uh -huh. And this is where the political and the propaganda games really started, and the useless United Nations, of course, did more harm than good, because that's all they're really good at, to be honest. If the Olympics were going to be taken from Beijing, this would have been the time to do it. But the argument could easily be made at that time that there was little to no proof that anything wrong was actually happening. Unfortunately, the political wheels turned very slowly. Now, this should have been where individual countries should have declared to China, to the International Olympic Committee, and to the potential athletes that if what was rumored to be happening was actually happening, they would not be sending anyone to these Olympics. But nobody did this either. So we come to today. There are those that have said that we shouldn't have sent our athletes. But what would this have done? The only real message that would have been sent is to our athletes, that what they've been working so hard for is now all for naught. I'm not someone that says everything needs to be fair, but refusing to send your athletes literally harms nobody but the athletes and is extremely unfair. Now, if this was an annual event, eh, okay, maybe, but a lot can change in four years. Since an athlete boycott wasn't declared early, I think doing it last minute would have been very wrong. Thankfully, in my opinion, we didn't do that. Let the athletes compete if they so choose. Let them represent their country. And as of now, the Olympics are Olympicking, the athletes are athleting, so what do we do? Well, I've linked some articles regarding the network ratings tanking, the opening ceremony being the worst of all time, and in general, conservatives seem to be applauding this. Um, I can't fully join them. My view and my decision is to support the athletes, support the team, without supporting the advertisers, without supporting the Olympics in Beijing. I'm not watching the opening or closing ceremonies, and the collapse in ratings for those is a good way to show your displeasure, as that's a direct message to the host country that we don't agree with or support them, as those ceremonies are all on them. It's their time to shine, so to speak. I have no problem with expressing displeasure with the networks, with the advertisers, with directed boycotts based on their support of the games. I have no problem with, as has been suggested for many years, buying local, not buying things that have Made in China stamped on the bottom. But I ask you, what good does it do to boycott the athletes? I'm sure that many of them have a political leaning. I'm sure that many of them have a personal view on China, human rights, the Uyghurs, but for nearly all of them, we'll never know what that is. And this is how it should be. Just perform your specialty, what you've been training your whole life to do, to the best of your ability. And win a medal for yourself, and your team, and your country. So for me, I'll watch the events that I enjoy with a clear conscience. I'll root for the athletes, I'll celebrate the medals, and I'll ignore the ceremonies. I'll support the politicians that best align with my views, which would be anti-genocide, as it so happens. I'll continue to educate myself, and I'll continue to try to speak truth. And if you feel the same, welcome. And if you don't feel the same, that's fine too. It's your prerogative. 
the Bible tells us not to violate our conscience. Although genocide is murder, and murder is one of the big no-nos in the Bible, the athletes are not committing genocide or expressing agreement with genocide or promoting genocide by simply competing in their sport. They're just competing in their sport. Furthermore, these athletes, unlike some others in a sport I won't name that utilizes a ball and a hoop and very tall people, are not sponsored by China. They're not beholden to China. I just hope that we get back the same number of athletes that we've sent there, preferably the same ones. I was listening to a podcast the other day and a woman called in. She was livid. She said basically that there was no way the Olympic Games would be on for one second on any TV in her house. It was not allowed. And then the host of the podcast asked her if she owned any Apple products. At this point, she got very quiet and said, unfortunately, I do. Now, his point was not to shame her. It was to point out that although we can have very strong feelings, we all compartmentalize certain things. We make choices, and sometimes those choices involve compromise. He pointed out that attempting to boycott everything we didn't agree with was virtually impossible, unless you're a mountain person living off the grid. Trust me, I've had lists of companies that support abortion, lists of companies that primarily contribute to Democrats, lists of companies that are massive supporters of LGBTQI2 plus causes, and then I disposed of the lists. I'm not a mountain man. I would not survive off the grid. If the world falls apart, if it weren't for my ability to temporarily defend myself, I'd be the first one eaten. And I'd be delicious. Remember the flavors in the fat. <clears throat> so my intention with this edantorial is not to try to persuade or convince you to watch and enjoy the games, but maybe to free you from a conflicted conscience. Note, not a convicted conscience. But maybe if you're struggling because you feel that you want to watch the games and support your athletes, but you're being told that you should boycott the games and be angry and bitter, maybe I can free you to just enjoy the games and root for your team. Look for real ways to help, to express your views, to support politicians and companies that better align with your worldview, knowing that you'll almost never find perfection, rather than what, in my opinion, amounts to little more than vacuous platitudes. One of the favorite articles for me to find is one on the latest discovery that further proves evolution. I've got one here. This will probably be a little bit of an extended analysis of the article, but that's okay. I think you'll enjoy it. I don't think I've found one of these articles yet that isn't slap full of the most ridiculous information claiming to be factual. The problem is the average reader will read this kind of article and gloss over the illogical bits because they're written as facts. And who are you to question it? These are experts, after all. Well, that's not how my mind works. I mentioned in my introductory episode that I am a holder of a Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical Engineering, which doesn't really sound like much until you realize that it's the exact same degree that Bill Nye, yes, the science guy has. So now, how much? Something. Anyway, seriously though, you don't have to be an expert in any of these fields to ask questions. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not a biologist. But I have the ability to ask why, and so do you. So let's dig into this one, shall we? 
on CNN.com an article entitled, Fossil Site Discovery Tells of Australia's Origin Story. Well, it's about time we hear about that. Now, I started there, but I quickly had to move to the next level article on National Geographic entitled, See the Spectacular Fossils from a Newly Discovered Prehistoric Rainforest. And this is the one that I want to walk through with you. Oh, it's a, it's a treasure trove. The only difficult part about slicing the illogicality out of an article like this is, where do you start? Okay, so here's the background. On a piece of land near Gilgong, Australia, I hope it's pronounced Gilgong because that's fantastic, this is about 180 miles northwest of Sydney, a location called McGrath's Flat, which is named after the farmer who owned the land and made the initial discovery. There's a cache of unbelievably well-preserved fossils that's been found in an iron-rich stone called Guthite or ironstone. The types of insects, leaves, fish, spiders, etc. that have been found here, uh, an area that is really nothing but desert and shrubland, at least now, suggests to the archaeologists that are working the dig that the region used to be the home of a rainforest. Now, the claim is that this find is one of only a few locations that has a preserved rainforest ecosystem dating back to the Miocene epoch, a period between 23.03 million to 5.33 million years ago. Apparently, mammal and reptile bones are generally found preserved in the Miocene layer. But finding the small bugs and other plants and forms of life is very unique. This specific find chronicles, quote, an astoundingly diverse rainforest that grew in New South Wales between 16 million and 11 million years ago, end quote. So let's stop there for a moment before proceeding and ask the question, how do they know? See, in the Nat Geo article, you can click through to a much more technical article on science.org. This gives more information as to how they believe they know this. Bottom line, the layer of the earth that these fossils were found in corresponds with other defined layers per spore pollen zones. Hang with me here. These zones determine that the layer is in a subsection of the Miocene era. The layer ages were allegedly determined by using argon-argon dating methods, we generally say carbon dating is a catch-all term for dating fossils, but carbon dating can only go back so far, so there are a number of other dating methods looking at decay of specific elements. Argon, argon. So the age claim for this specific find is made based on the pollen type found, which was classified at some other time based on the dating method used. Hang with me. If you dig back farther, not in this article, you'll find that in order to select the proper dating method, the analyst will first need to know what layer the fossil was found in. See, you can use any dating method you want on anything you want, but you'll get a wild variety of ages based on the method used because they all have limits. So analysis must know the layer you found the fossil in to determine the age range of the layer to use the correct technology to date the fossil. Okay, good so far. So how do we know the layer? Well, the layer is, or it was, determined based on the fossils found in the layer. 
per totally scientific predictions based on the theory of evolution, certain creatures should exist in certain layers that point to certain ages. So when you boil it down, and here's the payoff, the layers were dated by the fossils they contain, and the fossils are dated by the layer they come from. I'm literally not making this up. This is how it works. This is called circular reasoning. Furthermore, the assumption is that the current state of ingesting these isotopes and the current half-life of these isotopes is the same as it is today, a theory called uniformitarianism. That's a good one for Scrabble if you have that many tiles. That, again, is a massive, unprovable assumption. And this theory is only invoked when it's convenient, with the largest laying aside of uniformitarianism being during the Big Bang, when nothing, no known laws of physics, math, or anything else work like they do today. And then right after the Big Bang, all the laws kicked in. Look it up. I'm not making this up. Now that we've got that well established, let's look at how this specific bounty was preserved. Now, in the Nat Geo article, under the header of A Lake Flooded with Iron, we find out the origin story of this fossil bed. I'm going to read this section verbatim. It's about four paragraphs, short paragraphs. I want you to listen closely. If you can, if you have the ability, you're not driving or operating heavy, heavy equipment, take note of the facts that you hear presented. I am now quoting the article. The team's current thinking is that McGrath's Flat was once an oxbow lake that formed when part of a meandering river was cut off. Most of the time, the lake was fairly quiet, with low oxygen levels and few predators. But judging from more than a dozen fish fossils recovered from the site so far, fish and other riverine creatures periodically washed into the lake, perhaps when the nearby river flooded its banks. McCurry and Freeze suspect that iron from a nearby basalt deposit dissolved into water passing through the weathering rock. This iron-laden water then reached the underground water table and eventually leached sideways into the Oxbow Lake. Whenever fresh, highly oxygenated water entered the lake, perhaps through torrential rains or floods, the iron ions could no longer stay dissolved and rapidly formed guthite on the lake bed floor. These rapidly precipitating minerals then buried whatever leaves or carcasses happened to have sunk to the bottom of the lake. Over time, guthite replaced the buried soft tissues, recording their shapes in the fossils we see today. The team has some reason to think that the lake's guthite cycle may have been caused by seasonal monsoons. Of the hundreds of fossil flowers found at McGrath's Flat so far, most of them died before they had bloomed suggesting that the burials occurred during a consistent time of year. The team also has many fossils, uh, fossils of insects that in modern ecosystems are seen only in the spring and summer. End of quote. Now, here are the facts that I found. I'm going to list them. You can mark them off on your list as we go. Ready? Let's see how you stack up. One, more than a dozen fish fossils were recovered. Two, Hundreds of fossil flowers were found, most died before they bloomed. Three, many fossil insects that in modern ecosystems are only seen in the spring and summer were found. And that's all. Did you have more? Did you find those? Now, you might have a larger list. 
Let's take a look and see what they presented as facts, and we'll discuss them as we go. One, McGrath's Flat was once an oxbow lake. Note that this is qualified with, quote, the team's current thinking, end quote. See, there's no proof here. They literally have no evidence, no facts, no eyewitness accounts. They have nothing but what they dreamed up in their heads to help them craft their narrative. So why do people accept this as fact? Well, it's in the details. Just listen to the picture they paint. The lake formed when part of a meandering river was cut off. Now, how could they know it was a river? And, and how would they know that it was meandering? Next point, most of the time, the lake was fairly quiet with low oxygen levels and few predators. This is amazing knowledge, all based on just some small fossils. Next, fish and other riverine creatures periodically washed into the lake, perhaps when the nearby river flooded its banks. Well, how do they know this? They said they had about a dozen fish fossils. Are they saying that from these fossils, they know that fish and other creatures washed in there, but only periodically, and that this was likely happening when the river flooded? That's, that's a lot of knowledge from a few fossils. Okay, that's the lake formation. So what happened to cause the ironstone and fossils? Well, this starts with the team suspects, again, no evidence. No facts, no data, only speculation. Okay, so what do they suspect? Well, they suspect that iron from nearby basalt deposits dissolved into water passing through the weathering rock. They suspect that the iron-laden water got into the water table and that the water leached sideways into the convenient or magical lake. And they suspect that fresh, highly oxygenated water got into the lake, perhaps perhaps, through torrential rains or floods, which then forced the iron ions to precipitate out and drop to the lake bed to form guthite. And based on the fossil flowers and insects found, quote, the team has some reason to think, end quote. Again, this is nothing but speculation. They're trying to fit what they're seeing into what they've been told or even indoctrinated to think. They have reasons to believe that this Gothite formation was seasonal or cyclical, and it may have been caused by seasonal monsoons. Are you seeing the problem? In four paragraphs, we have the qualifiers of current thinking, suspect, perhaps, has reason to think, and suggesting. But then everything stated after those qualifiers is stated as if it's absolute fact. The level of detail combined with the majority of the statements written as facts generally bog down the average reader and cause him to nod in agreement that this must be true. But that entire section of the story is nothing but a fairy tale. I mean, I, I kind of feel like I've got John Lovitz as the pathological liar from Saturday Night Live, you know, back when it was funny, reading me this story. He, he's... Hey, yeah, so so this was a lake, yeah, and it used to be part of a river. Yeah, that's right, and this river, it went back and forth, and, and one day it just cut off the lake. Yeah, that's the ticket. And this lake, let me tell you, it was a beautiful lake, yeah, and it was quiet, and there were fish. Yeah, I'm sure of it. I mean, I mean, what what else could you take from this? 
you have to look out for these qualifiers. These little words and phrases that indicate a tall tale is coming next. Now, it really doesn't get any better when moving to the fossils. From my understanding of fossilization of plants and animals, the only way that this narrative could be passed off as factual or as evidence of millions of years is because those that understand it are as programmed and deluded as the archaeological team and the writer of this story, or they're simply an average reader who doesn't really have the understanding or knowledge needed to realize they're being sold a bill of goods. So what did they find? Well, these are facts. They found spiders fossilized even down to the leg hairs. They found fossil fish still with full bellies. They found leaves that have such detail you can see the pores in the leaf. They found a sawfly still covered in pollen on its head, suggesting it had just eaten the nectar of a flower. They found a fishtail that still has a parasitic larva of a mussel attached. They found a fossil feather in which the sacs of the pigment melanin are still preserved to the point that the analyst could conclude by the shape that the feather was likely dark or iridescent. They found a fossil fish eye where melanin is still visible. And they found a single scale, get this, a single scale shed from a butterfly or moth wing. And how were these preserved? Well, remember, the iron ions dropped out of suspension, fell to the lake floor, and caused guthite. So, quoting the article, they say, quote, These rapidly precipitating minerals then buried whatever leaves or carcasses happened to have sunk to the bottom of the lake. Over time, guthite replaced the buried soft tissues, recording their shapes in the fossils we see today. Okay, here's a couple questions we should start with. The fish had a full belly. If it just ate, how did it fall to the bottom of the lake? And how long would a dead fish float before falling to the lake bed? And if it was floating, dead, are we to expect that it didn't decay or that other fish or whatever else was around didn't eat it? What about the sawfly? It had pollen on its head, which suggests it just ate. Then why was it at the bottom of the lake? Wouldn't the lake water wash off the pollen if it was dead? I, I don't know. Maybe pollen is sticky enough it would stick on the head that long, but how long will it stick to the head? And then how about the larva that was on the fishtail? How long would that larva hold to a dead fishtail since it's supposed to be living on the slime that the fish produced? If the fish is dead, it's not producing the slime. It seems to me that there's something contradictory between the findings and the theories. Furthermore, if a soft tissue plant or animal fell to the bottom of a lake, for the most part, how long would it survive without decaying and rotting or being eaten? A dead soft tissue doesn't just sit in water intact. It decays pretty rapidly. And from larger life forms to bacteria, the process of removing the decaying carcass is started almost immediately. But we have fossilized spider leg hairs and a butterfly scale. That kind of fossilization perfection could not be achieved by a precipitation of iron, no matter how rapidly, while it's sitting at the bottom of a lake waiting to be covered. 
Bottom line, there is literally no way this could have happened the way they're describing. These soft tissue plant and animal remains had to be covered and buried rapidly. They would have had to be encased tightly with oxygen, which is what promotes the decay, gone, squeezed out in order to preserve the detail and prevent decay. Now, the process of fossilization, they do have correct. It's a replacement of the soft tissue over time by something, in this case, guthite. Now, from this point, the article states that the team is trying to refine the fossil site's age so they know when this area changed from a tropical rainforest into a desert shrubland. And why? Oh, man. Climate change, of course. They say that the CO2 levels during the early to middle Miocene epoch are about what we have today, which according to CO2.Earth, that's correct if they're correct, and if that website's correct. And of course, the CO2 levels are what is assumed to have changed the tropical region to desert and shrubland. I have some questions. If the CO2 level today is elevated because of man, why was it elevated to the same level then? And, and how do they know that the CO2 levels is what caused the habitat change? And doesn't vegetation breathe CO2? Wouldn't that just promote larger plants and trees and more of them? As a matter of fact, as of today, the planet is greener than it was 20 years ago. So says a NASA study from 2019. Now, they say it's primarily because India and China have been planting trees like gangbusters, and maybe they have. That might be true, I don't know. But all of those trees, they need to breathe. If you plant too many trees and they don't have enough CO2, those trees die. Furthermore, according to NASA, the entire planet has been greening all over, every region. In fact, there are only a couple very small spots where the vegetation has gone down in the past 20 years. And when you look at them, it kind of appears to be maybe they were clearing land for whatever reason. So if CO2 is killing the planet and we must stop emitting CO2, how come the planet right now seems to be thriving? Okay. I think I pointed out adequately the glaringly obvious flaws in determining ages of layers and fossils, the massive assumptions that are passed off as facts, and the blatant contradictions that are being twisted and fed to the reader. What's the overall problem here? The real problem is that not one of the scientists mentioned, or that set up the age system, or Nat Geo, or those that publish this work in the journal Science Advances, has actually done science. They've done some science, they've done pseudoscience or faux science, as I've said before, science by definition can never be settled. Science is the process of looking at evidence, putting forth a hypothesis, then using every single tool available to prove your hypothesis wrong. Only when you can't prove it wrong can you call the hypothesis true for now. What, let's call it mainstream science and archaeology has done is discount one huge area of historical evidence from the equation. They have settled that evolution is science, that the Bible is a myth, a fairy tale, therefore it's to be discounted. And that's the problem. The Bible's not a scientific textbook, but every scientific claim it's made has been proven correct. In fact, nothing in the Bible has been disproven. Some things haven't been proven yet, but the vast majority of geography, people, and events have been proven to be accurately accounted in the Bible. The Bible has a theory that should be included in any of these types of studies and finds. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, this happened 6,000 years ago, give or take a few. There may have been a big bang, uh, but in what I freely admit is my opinion, I think that bang would have been when God created the stars also. I like to think that that process sent out a cosmic boom that has never been duplicated. Now, the Bible tells us that in six days he created everything on one supercontinent. Some say Pangaea. I personally don't subscribe to the theory of Pangaea, at least not how it's typically presented. But on the supercontinent was the original garden. And then even after the sin and the fall, one has no reason to believe that there were major climate shifts that took place. I can't be dogmatic about that. However, as we are told nothing of it either way in the Bible, it's possible that the climate stayed the same. But then, 4,500 years ago, approximately, God shattered the supercontinent when the fountains of the deep broke forth, and at the same time, the windows of heaven were opened, and massive amounts of rain fell. You would have had earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, typhoons. These would have all had to have happened due to the massive disturbance to the entire planet. And at the end of the flood, the mountains rose up, the valley sunk down and the water rolled off into the locations within the boundaries that God determined they should go. This entire process would have buried a massive amount of carbon-based life, like plants and, and animals and humans and insects and things like that. In massive regions, we now have fossil fuels, like oil, that resulted from the heat and pressure placed on this buried life. In other places, all sorts of things would have been buried in a manner that would have allowed fossilization. Additionally, this would have totally screwed up the climate. Land masses would be where land masses weren't before, and land would have been stripped bare of vegetation. The volcanic ash, the water vapor, uh, it all would have led to some very weird climate anomalies for a long time to come, potentially even reaching to this very day. Now, I wasn't there for this flood. I happen to believe the Bible is telling us a true historical account. The entire event of creation through the flood is written in the same style as the events that come after it, as factual, historical narrative. Despite what you've been told, it's not written as poetry, it's not figurative language, and it's definitely not mytho-history like William Leg Craig has recently come out and erroneously called it. So here's the thing. I can't prove that what's in the Bible is what happened, but they can't prove that evolution and millions of years happened either. We have the same evidence. That's all. These scientists, quote unquote, can't claim science when they discount one entire origin narrative because they've predetermined that it doesn't count. And when you boil it down, it doesn't count because it can't count. Because if it even has the chance of being true, it means that God could be real, and millions and billions of people do not want that to be true. Now, like I said, this was a bit of an extended look at an article. Hopefully, it opened your eyes even just a little bit to look at what's being written or what you're being told, and it will maybe help you find the lack of actual science that's being pushed. And let me say this, the creation versus evolution debate is not the only area where science has settled on something and pass it off to you as fact, when it's really just the accepted and the allowed story. Now, I'll say this. If this type of stuff interests you, I would highly recommend you check out some sites like Answers in Genesis, Creation Ministries International, or Institute for Creation Research, and I'm sure there are many others. 
they have a ton of information on all sorts of topics in this genre. And I've got links in the show notes that will direct you to the articles we just discussed and the backing information that I discussed and these creation-based resources. So I hope you enjoyed it and uh, let's move on. Well, we did it. Assuming that you're part of those of us that feel a vaccine mandate is illegal, regardless of what you feel about the vaccine itself, a few weeks after the SCOTUS ruling that blocked the use of OSHA to enforce a vax or test mandate for businesses over 100 employees, the Biden administration said it was withdrawing the mandate. Using the article on Yahoo News entitled, Biden Administration Withdraws Its Vaccine or Test Mandate for Businesses, we get the news of the victory. And along with the withdrawal, a motion was filed to dismiss the remaining lawsuits as moot. Now in this article, being liberal Yahoo, they make sure to repeat the fact, or more accurately, the totally unscientific finger-in-the-air talking point that the mandate would have saved thousands of lives and prevented over 250,000 hospitalizations in only the first six months after implementation. And how could they know that? And how exactly do they account for that? Yeah, this isn't science. This is, uh, quote, science. The article also places the blame for all of the hospitalizations and deaths that we're apparently going to have now because this mandate was brutally struck down by the conservative majority on the Supreme Court, on not only the court, but also the, quote, more than two dozen Republican attorneys general that filed multiple lawsuits against this mandate based on constitutional grounds. Let's be honest, there's no way the Founding Fathers could have ever, ever foreseen illness and plague. This isn't the end, though, as OSHA was simply trying to push this through under a temporary emergency order. Now, to me, temporary means it can be undone. If they come into the workplace and say, hey, that job seems like it's unsafe, we suggest the temporary use of a hazmat suit and breathing air while performing it while we evaluate... Well, okay, it may be an inconvenience, but if they evaluate and determine that's a higher level of personal protective equipment than what's really needed, they can rescind the order, I can take off the suit, and remove the breathing air system. When you inject a chemical into me, regardless of what it is, if they evaluate later and find that it wasn't needed, or worse, that it has negative effects, I can't just take the chemical back out. So I don't see how this could be considered temporary. That said... OSHA is still evaluating this for implementation as a rule. Oh, that sounds good. Now, I have no doubt that this would be struck down as well if they actually worked up the double-barrel brass to try it, but this comes into why the Biden administration is withdrawing the mandate, and more importantly, why they want the lawsuits dismissed. See, these lawsuits could still be heard, and a decision could still be rendered. I don't know what specifically the various filings say, But this is a trick of the left. They've been doing this for a long time. They push and push until they're going to be ruled against, and then they withdraw. And then the lawsuit is dismissed with no judgment rendered against them, which means they can back up and try a different tactic to accomplish the same thing. The SCOTUS ruled against this mandate. True. But the left doesn't just do things like withdraw this kind of power grab unless they have a reason to do so. Granted, this is purely speculation, but it's based on their past practice. I think this is being done to ensure no more rulings would pile up that, if worded in a specific way, could imperil the potential for doing this again from a different angle. 
And as we're seeing Republican lawmakers start to tweet their successes, it puts them back to sleep, while what they should be doing is crafting legislation that makes it illegal or unconstitutional even to force a free citizen to be injected with anything. I just have a difficult time believing this was done because they've given up. Whoever's pulling the strings in the Biden administration, Obama, I don't think they're just giving in. Anyway, just a quick analysis, something for you to ponder. Keep an eye out for what's going on on the other hand. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.